is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome, everyone, to the Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Ali Solinsky, Vice President for Research at NBR. It has now been nine years since the Japanese government purchased three of the disputed Senkaku Islands from a private owner, prompting large-scale protests in China and bringing Japan and China to the brink of military conflict. Shortly after, the PRC established the East China Sea Air Defense Identification Zone, which covered the Senkakus, or as the Chinese call them, the Diaoyu Islands. The islands continue to represent a potential flashpoint for conflict in East Asia, most clearly between Japan and China, but also of concern for the United States. Since the crisis, the U.S. has continually reaffirmed its position that the Senkakus are covered by the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty, first in April 2014 and most recently in the April 2021 Biden-Suga Summit. The reaffirmation of the Mutual Security Treaty has proven effective at deterring conventional aggression by Beijing and the Senkakus and the East China Sea for now. Nonetheless, we have seen China invest considerable time and energy in developing existing conventional and novel non-conventional gray zone capabilities to alter the status quo in the East China Sea. So in this episode of Asia Insight, we'll be discussing Chinese gray zone operations in the East China Sea and the role of the U.S.-Japan alliance in deterring and responding to gray zone contingencies. This discussion expands on the findings of NBR's John M. Shalikashvili Chair in National Security Studies, most recent publication, Murky Waters in the East China Sea, Chinese Gray Zone Operations and U.S.-Japan Alliance Cooperation, which features four chapters written by U.S. and Japanese authors and evaluates the dynamics surrounding Chinese gray zone operations in the East China Sea. So I'm joined today by the holder of the Shali Chair, Admiral Jonathan Greenard, to discuss some of the major findings in the report, as well as his own experiences countering Chinese aggression in the region and facilitating alliance coordination with the Japanese self-defense forces. The Shali Chair is tasked with advancing the study of national security issues and the interests of the United States in Asia. The chair provides a platform for distinguished practitioners to inform, strengthen, and shape the understanding of U.S. policymakers on critical current and long-term national security issues related to the Asia-Pacific. Before joining NBR in 2016, Admiral Greenert served as the 30th Chief of Naval Operations. He has had a distinguished 40-year career in the U.S. Navy with many assignments in the Asia-Pacific region including serving as commander for Submarine Squadron 11 and U.S. Naval Forces Marianas, chief of staff and commander for the U.S. 7th Fleet, deputy commander for U.S. PAC Fleet, and com commander for U.S. Fleet Forces Command. In 2009, Admiral Greenert became the 36th vice chief of naval operations, a position he held until 2011 before serving as the 30th chief of naval operations from 2011 to 2015. So, Thank you so much for joining us, Admiral. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate it. It's uh, great to be with you. Great. Well, let's dive in um, and start with uh, kind of your background and experience. So tell us a little bit about your experience in dealing with Chinese behavior and U.S.-Japan alliance coordination in the East China Sea and the Indo-Pacific region writ large. Good question, and I appreciate the opportunity. The it's been a real evolution 
watching China and dealing with China. Uh, first, a little bit of my biography. As you mentioned, I spent a bit of time in the Pacific. Uh, and to summarize, of the 40 years I served, 15 of those were either in Hawaii or the Western Pacific in some sort of leadership position such that I was able to kind of um, observe China uh, or interface with China. And uh, that included, as you mentioned, two times in Japan, uh, two tours in Japan, I should say, uh, a tour in Guam, and then as the deputy of Pacific Fleet. Now, that was in 2002 to 2004. Commander 7 Fleet, 2004 to 2006, so in the 2000s. And then when I was uh, chief of naval operations from 2011 to 15, I spent a good bit of time interfacing with Wu Sheng Li, who was the chief, basically the chief of the PLAN. So <clears throat> observations. I would say from my time looking at China, the Chinese Navy from the 90s through the, say, the 2000s, they were growing, but really not threatening would be the easiest way to summarize it. Uh, we happened to take the 7th Fleet flagship in 1998 to Hong Kong and observe part of the turnover of Hong Kong, including the arrival of the Chinese garrison. And it was interesting because they were very low key, very friendly, unarmed, did not have camouflage uniforms or anything like it. In fact, it looked like the arrival of maybe a United Nations contingency. We were doing a lot of Navy port calls during that time, Hong Kong, Qingdao, Shanghai, and others. And we did staff talks, we visited each other's ships, but one thing stood out. There was what we called no reciprocity. In other words, we'd show them things that say, oh goodness, we don't have any of that, or we're not worthy to show you that. And you would have thought, hmm, what does that mean? Where's that going? In 2005, uh, we had a PLA delegation on our two nuclear aircraft carriers who were operating together in an exercise called tandem thrust, which we still do today. It's a dual carrier operation, sort of a, a observation or demonstration of power. And uh, a lot of cameras, uh, probably a lot of recorders going on. And they were, again, oh, gee whiz, we're so small and you're so big. So things were going well. There was this cooperative relationship. You might recall the you went to the Obama years, she Obama, the sunny lands, June of 2013. <clears throat> a great thing. China attended and participated in RIMPAC 2014. And I would say that. And their participation in the International Sea Power Symposium later that same year, where Wu Sheng Li himself came, the chief of the Navy. And we organized it that year a meeting with the chief of the Japanese Maritime uh, Staff Office, Admiral Kawano. Uh, that was, uh, I should say, not a formal meeting. Uh, it was by no means uh, supported by the requisite staffs. But the point is, that was a high point. They they sat down and discussed protocols for avoiding miscalculation that. Well, it all went downhill, not necessarily fast, but after that. Um, I had a meeting at that same International Sea Power Symposium in Newport, Rhode Island, September 2014 with Wu Sheng Li. And I laid down some uh, overheads of some islands where that they were creating basically islands, right? You know, the proverbial wall of sand uh, down there in the South China Sea. Uh, he denied it. <clears throat> and then I gave him more pictures and he said, well, okay, 
but they won't be offensive. And I will guarantee you, we will never, quote, we will never conduct offensive operations from there. As you recall, not long after that, President Xi promises we will not use those for military use to Obama. All untrue. Uh, so that you can see the degradation, the sort of the lack of credibility kind of building. And that's kind of where I left when I retired. It just was they had a plan. They were carrying it out. Uh, it, whether they come to the World uh, Trade Organization or whatever, it's not going to be a cooperative thing. Now, our coordination with Japan evolved uh, in a similar manner. Uh, in the East China Sea, frankly, the coordination was limited. Uh, as we all know, and as you mentioned in the introduction, Allison, we have a commitment. Uh, uh, you know, you could call it a mutual uh, trade, uh, sorry, a, a treaty uh, security agreement uh, with them, but there was not much coordination. In the view of the Japanese, it wasn't needed. Things were not all that bad. We got this sort of a, a relationship. But the, the PLAF, the, uh, Jap the Chinese Air Force and the PLAN, the activity started building in and around the Senkakos, and it had been. We were, frankly, not really aware of it, we, the U.S. Navy, the United States. But it built to the point where the Japanese came to us and said, we're very, very concerned. Uh, we're at the point where we're now sending um, our ships down there, our Navy. And that really got my attention because uh, that's not a big area. And now you have Chinese Navy ships, Japanese Navy ships, two nations don't like each other, long-term problem, uh, a dispute over territory, it involves energy, it involves sovereignty. This is not a good mix. Uh, as you mentioned, Secretary of State Clinton declared U.S. support and acknowledgement of that administrative control, if you will, of the islands, and each subsequent Secretary of State has reaffirmed that. Uh, so through things, through time into the 2011, 12, 15, 18, Japan increased the patrols, but wisely went, shifted to their Coast Guard ships. They built more, they deployed more, and every time there was uh, increasing, I should add, Chinese incursion, rather than scramble a military jet, Japan kind of backed off a little bit and said, we will track them on our radar. And if it looked like they were going to actually violate some of our space, airspace, then we will intercept them. So uh, to, to kind of bring this together, uh, tabletop exercises conducted by the Sasakawa Peace uh, Foundation and the Center for a New American Security from 2016 to 2019 showed that uh, the issue in the East China Sea is of concern because, one, events occur fast. It's a smaller area. Two, it's an all-domain challenge. It's an air challenge, a surface, subsurface, and cyber. Uh, there's a gray zone to this point emerging. Uh, China is uh, using a maritime militia. They're using diplomatic pressure and anywhere from United Nations Convention of Law of the Sea deliberations with ASEAN nations in and around the area to Taiwan and the whole idea of their recognition and where China would threaten another nation if they continue to recognize Taiwan. Uh, so, of course, nations were dropping off that recognition of Taiwan accordingly to economic pressure with the uh, Republic of Korea, Vietnam and Australia, just to name a few. So uh, Taiwan, ASEAN, the Republic of Korea are all probably a likely part of an East China Sea crisis. And that has been an evolution and what makes this more difficult. We are committed, the United States, to supporting Japan. We have the mutual defense treaty called the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security. 
all of this has evolved over time and brought us to this point we are today. Started out pretty well with China, sort of degraded. They were on a track that they are insistent on, uh, and we are much more wiser uh, as to what that is today. That's great. I mean, that that is a really wonderful uh, way to lay out, I think, that trajectory um, of where that relationship has evolved. And you know, we, we do often hear uh, more coverage and more concern about those developments in the South China Sea that you started with um, in terms of having that conversation with, with Wu Shengli about China's activities in the South China Sea um, and the expanse of Beijing's territorial claims there. But it is, you know, hearing you uh, detail some of the challenges that we face um, in the East China Sea, uh, it, it is evident why this is also a critical region for the United States to focus on. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the, the recent report that uh, was released underneath uh, the auspices of our Shali chair, um, which focused on the shift from black and white operations to gray zone operations as an important operational change in PLA strategy. So let's just start out by you know, setting a baseline. What exactly are gray zone operations? And um, you know, maybe where do we find some examples of this operational shift? Boy, that's the uh, what used to be called the $64,000 question. It's got to be at least worth millions by now. Um, Ali, uh, gray zone is really anything that's not armed conflict. Uh, Japan defines it as those which are not peacetime operations, but they're not contingency operations. So to really understand what they are and, and how they might affect us, I think one needs to under, sort of define what's armed, uh, what is an armed operation, for lack of a better term, and when is uh, something an attack. Um, because they bring with them the definition of those two words, especially in the context of how Japan and the United States think of them, legal and operational constraints. Uh, the shift to gray zone operations has been evolving for a decade. Uh, it's, it's been in there. Uh, China entered the contiguous waters long ago. Now, contiguous, that doesn't mean territorial waters. Those are the the waters, if you will, say 14 miles out instead of 12 miles. The, the international 12-mile limit, everybody's aware of. If you violate that, I mean, that's a huge threshold. But uh, China would take it right to that limit and operate in the contiguous waters. Uh, they used, started using fishing boats to harass the Chinese Coast Guard uh, or U.S. survey ships, uh, establish overlapping air defense identification zones and, and work in that regard. Uh, declare the South China Sea and the East China Sea their waters. Therefore, in their mind, hey, this is a domestic issue. We're doing constabulatory uh, items. We're, we're not violating anything internationally. And they started using the Chinese Coast Guard, what they'll call the Strategic Support Forces or the Maritime Militia. Uh, and they operate in the cyber domain, space, public affairs, and uh, Oh, other things that they follow on with. Who knows what they're going to go with next? Uh, as I mentioned, though, uh, it, they get into the economic realm and the diplomatic realm. So it's been evolutionary. Uh, it's been a, a matter of a small area, a lot going on, uh, high emotion, and a lot of legacy and history. 
Great. And when we look in particular at some of the challenges that these gray zone operations pose for the U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, what do you see as uh, the main issues for alliance coordination uh, that that these not quite uh, black, not quite white, uh, armed not armed attack uh, operations are posing to the U.S.-Japan alliance? Well, uh, these called gray zone operations, uh, if you involve Russia, you can say hybrid, you know, it's really kind of the same as we know. They're just not accounted for in, uh, in the case of Europe, in, in the NATO Article 5 as well. And here in the subject at hand, it's not accounted for in our mutual security slash support uh, uh, protocols. Uh, China takes advantage of it, and they operate below the armed attack, as I mentioned before. They've read, they've read the treaty. Uh, they have lawyers, too, as we say. Uh, gray zone occurs in there. They, where they operate in the gray zone, if you will, it occurs episodically. It's quickly. And then, as I mentioned before, it's kind of across the spectrum. Um, they, again, they declare, you know, we're doing this due to domestic law, due to this, due to that. It's, it's sort of like, what do you expect us to do? You know, it's it's really not on us. We're not being aggressive. Um, the Japan-U.S. Uh, coordination mechanism is not organized, trained, or equipped to deal with the gray zone. We don't have a full-time staff dealing with it in the collective way, Japan, the United States. We don't exercise it. And it, as I mentioned, it's not been legally addressed. So we have... Um, we are handicapped in our own processes, some of our legacy treaty processes and our own uh, diplomatic and security uh, limits that we put on ourselves. I'm not say saying that is bad at its impetus, but it certainly needs updated. Great, but that's a great segue then to, uh, to the next question I was going to ask you is, um, what are the elements of the alliance framework uh, that we uh, we need to update um, that are in need of immediate and urgent action? Uh, some of these were covered in in that Shali Chair report, Murky Waters. But um, what are some of those alliance issues that that, that you identify, or that uh, some of the folks working on this research project have identified? Sure. Uh, well. Uh, First of all, we need to establish, uh, I guess what I'll call a uh, joint, that means all the services of the requisite militaries combined, the two countries are involved. Intergovernment, if you will, uh, that is um, uh, between Japan and the United States. Intra-government, that would be, you know, across, uh, as they say, whole of government for each country. So this is getting to be a big body already, right? And then non-government organizations, because that's where we are in the spectrum of operations that China brings to bear. They have managed to coordinate uh, all of those entities that I sort of described on their behalf for these operations. Mm -hmm. So we need to think through how do we uh, form a body, for lack of a better term. I don't want to use the magic word joint task force, because that has its own connotation and and we'll make a definition of who's included and who isn't, and that starts getting people to circle the wagons, for lack of a better term. But anyway, we need to think this through in that kind of a body. Point is, need to work on it full time. 
It's a fast evolving uh, situation when it gets there. We need to reconcile that armed attack issue. Easier said than done, but we need to get started. Even if we're going to stumble our way through it, uh, we need to do that. Uh, standing back is not the way to go because we don't like the trend where it's going. Well, they're not going to change. That is China. And this trend will continue. Uh, we need to establish, again, I, I'll use the word just because people are, understand what it means, but I don't mean it literally, and that is the term red lines. What are the red lines within gray zone operations, which we say we can't take this anymore because we are losing elements of either sovereignty or the perception of sovereignty or the confidence of our people, um, and, and it has, this has to stop, whatever that might be. Exercise the Article 5 protocols. So first step, okay, let's do a tabletop, uh, whatever. Um, I think a, a fleet or a joint exercise would be a great start. And then we can get long lists of things that we need to really get after. Uh, and then share intel, share our cyber processes, info operations, including economic, diplomatic, as I mentioned before, inter-intra-government actions that are relevant here. We need to kind of embrace Japan and have Japan embrace us as a true ally in this case. We are an ally, of course, but we don't do nearly the intelligence sharing day-to-day -day or cyber uh, operations and cybersecurity sharing day-to-day -day that we need to to act quickly. Those are just some of the things that uh, this excellent work, as you mentioned before, are in these essays. Great. So uh, you've identified a, a few areas uh, that would be really critical for uh, for the alliance to build on. Um, what what are some of the existing mechanisms that are in place within the U.S.-Japan alliance framework to respond to counter Chinese gray zone operations that uh, something like a potential joint task force or other uh, body would be building on? What exists so far? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a few con that will be conceptual and then I'll tangible. First, conceptually, we're committed, the U.S., to act in support of Japan. So unlike a lot of other uh, outside sort of challenges or potential crises, we're all in. Uh, we're in there uh, legally, but not only that, each secretary of state, and as was mentioned in these uh, series of essays, uh, the current secretary, the current president, uh, when he met uh, with the Japanese prime minister, already committed to it. And then we had the two plus two, our respective secretaries of state and defense, and their ministers of defense and foreign affairs met and said, OK, we got to stack hands on this issue. So there's commitment. And I wouldn't uh, disregard that as no big deal. The Senkakus, we agree, are under Japan's administrative control. It's sovereignty. It applies as Japanese territory. We have an, what's called an alliance coordinating mechanism. That is the means to coordinate for a crisis in and around Japan, and what they call actually literally a situation in and around Japan, including the Senkakus. But uh, as I was mentioned before, when exercised as evaluated, it's too slow and it doesn't include the requisite folks that need to be included in this regard. The alliance coordinating mechanism, uh, as defined or as described in our essays there, is really security related and involves security people. This is much broader than that. Uh, this is uh, the spectrum 
of government and country operations. And we have today co-located uh, in the Japanese Self-Defense Force and the U.S. Forces Japan, that is the U.S. military on Japan, uh, hosted by Japan, task forces, I used it again, but that's all right, I think tactical, uh, uh, they were co-located. So what that means is when, uh, in the air sense, when our planes, airplanes take off, and they send what they call the common operational picture. Hey, this is what I see, this is what I do. When Japan's folks take off and do the same thing, it comes to a common location. We, they're overlapped. We see what they see. They see what we see. So we're co-located, we are, and this is true in the maritime sense. Uh, it's true in the underwater sense, Yahoo, that's a big deal. And because uh, we don't do that with very many countries for, uh, I think, obvious reasons. If you're around underwater, it's very difficult to say where, see where everybody is. But it is important. The point is we, we have a co-location of our tactical forces. We can leverage that fairly quickly if we put the legal diplomatic um, terms in place. Are there any other more tangible, more uh, concrete measures that need to be taken to improve U.S. alliance, U.S.-Japan alliance responses to these gray zone operations? Sure. Some of these are repetitive, but yeah. I think it's important uh, because to my, I, I think they're tangible, as you described, and I think that's important as opposed to somebody ought to do something about this, but we don't know what it is. Uh, first, we got to establish a full-time staff with authorities. That could be as simple as saying the alliance coordinated mechanism is the authoritative means by which we will deal with uh, gray zone operations. That would be a good start, uh, and it's tangible. Uh, we need to organize, train, and equip for gray zone operations. All right, that tasking is currently not out. Uh, between the two countries and the two militaries, we're still wondering what we scratch our head and wonder what it is like other things. Well, I know it when I see it, but, you know, to prepare for it is more difficult. Third, uh, we really do need to delegate what I'll call just the appropriate entity to act on behalf of the combined nations. Is that going to be, in the case of, def of defense, that can be U.S. forces Japan. But in the case of gray zone operations, it isn't. Uh, will it be Indo-PACOM? Should it be a four star? Why, why would it be a military? Maybe it should be uh, an appropriate embassy. Maybe somebody from the Department of State or the government of Japan. But we should decide what that's going to be. And Allison, if, as you go through any kind of conflict, uh, they have these phases. Phase zero, one, two, three. Three is you're in combat. Uh, two, you're in increased crisis position and you sort of use more deterrent actions to dissuade, to have somebody step down or some call put the off ramps into, uh, uh, into effect. And you have phase one zero, which is zero is peacetime. Everything is, is great. We're typically in phase one. And so what I'm saying is the as you go through those phases, the person or entity in charge can change as you, quote, stand up, that as you say, stand up means you're shifting over to somebody else and they stand up and, and take charge. So we need somebody to be the standing uh, uh, entity and perhaps person in charge at this phase zero, phase one situation day to day. 
uh, then we could probably fall to the traditional, currently defined Article 5 means of operations if, we, if, we, if it degrades into armed attack. That's just one concept of how this needs to go, but, but we could do that. Uh, we could design uh, and uh, deploy deterrent kinetic and non-kinetic capabilities, uh, arm the Japanese Coast Guard and the U.S. Coast Guard accordingly, to send that message, say, you know, uh, we're very serious about this. There are non-lethal capabilities. You know, there's, there's uh, innovative technology out there to do anything, to do everything from jamming uh, to cutting fishing nets to, you know, taking action against something that is not quote unquote armed uh, attack, uh, but to show that you're serious. Uh, exercise and, tra and train with those features. Uh, tangibly inform the, the China of our intent. And these red lines, probably want to call them something else because red lines have their own connotation, like we said. And then uh, I mentioned uh, improve information and intel sharing. Uh, you say, well, give me something tangible. Well, we have something called Five Eyes. If you say, hey, what is the Five Eyes? Uh, there's a document and it defines the level of sharing between five countries. And uh, the uh, saying, well, we'll just uh, we'll put Japan in five eyes, really complicated because it has a lot of legacy, historical nature. But you could take the elements of the five eyes document, pull it out and say, these are the sorts of things we should be sharing with Japan. Uh, information, intelligence and cyber capability. So those are just a gaggle of things that uh, we could do tangibly. Um, to get on with this uh, and start improving. China's observant. They start seeing that, it, it will make them think. But to my knowledge today, we really, we're doing freedom of navigation ops, got that. That's a separate program. That's a longstanding program. That does not send a specific message. In fact, they find it as an old kind of Cold War-ish activity, that is they being China. And that goes with air operations as well. So I think something new and deliberate, to your point, to your question, tangible uh, is needed. Well, those are some great ideas and points. And, you know, we really are seeing gray zones increasingly become the norm for Chinese military organs. As, as China continues to rely and leverage these types of activities, what implications does this strategic shift, the transition hold for uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance and the sovereignty of the Senkaku Islands? And maybe a little bit broader, if you can expand it, how China pursues its national objectives, both in its immediate periphery and maybe even beyond that. Yeah, those, uh, that's a very thoughtful question. Uh, first, uh, this sovereignty issue is, um, well, it's sort of a petri dish slash uh, example, a good example of how's this going to go. And, and what I mean is uh, China's got their eyes on things. Uh, Taiwan is very well published. Uh, this, if Taiwan doesn't kind of, the, that issue doesn't hit the forefront, there's not a quote unquote event first, uh, what happens there could help the Chinese make a decision on where they want to go with that. So let me get to the point. Their strategy is to acquire without war, make the enemy submit uh, and, and or determine that it's inevitable 
And so that enemy or that adversary just backs away because they can't win. And so they either do that or the proverbial sue for peace uh, kind of a thing. Uh, so it's a challenge. What we have here is a challenge and it's an opportunity. Uh, by the way, make no mistake, it will send a message to Russia, Iran and North Korea, who Russia and Iran have already adapted, adopted, excuse me, and adapted their operations accordingly. Uh, Russia, more famous for the little green men, the eastern Ukraine and uh, Crimea and that kind of business. Uh, Iran, just with the provocations in the uh, in the Arabian Gulf and um, my guess is that that may increase uh, with the change in administration. So this continuous challenge should be expected, acknowledged, and uh, we kind of have to get on with it uh, and with, with that feature. Now, more broadly, I think um, looking at the way uh, I believe we have to uh, send a message, if we will, with China and how we're going to look at this global approach, um, I call it the three deterrents. And they're all in progress right now. Number one, uh, strategic nuclear. And you go, whoa, 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 where are you going with that? I say, simply put, we do know that China's developing their strategic nuclear capability. Started out modest. Uh, they were insistent where no first strike. They sort of backed away or garbled that up a little bit. But what they're doing and what they're building uh, is extraordinary. It's concerning to the strategic command and to those that do strategic nuclear. So my point is, uh, we need to make it clear that our triad modernization, which is underway right now, includes them and is uh, on behalf of them as well as Russia. So that's kind of the big broad as existential, you're not going to blackmail me deterrent. And that's the way it's going to be in the future. Number two, I'll call the conventional deterrent. The Pacific Defense Initiative is sort of an indication of that. Hey, uh, we're going to put this in place now. We're going to protect Guam, show them we can do it, uh, show China that any conventional armed attack or anything like it will have substantial costs, too costly, don't do it. And inherent in that are development of hypersonic weapons, laser, uh, rebalance of the Pacific, and all that goes with that. Uh, peer competition, etc. The third is really just a gray zone or blow arm attack or conflict deterrent. Uh, that's what we're talking about today. That's what I think we have to define and describe. How are we going to set the fence line, the red lines, whatever you want to call it, to say enough, you're not going to acquire um, the, you know, what we call the Senkakus, China, call, I'm sorry, Japan calls the Senkakus uh, or the South China Sea, the Nine Dash Line, all of those things, there has to be a limit and we have to see what that is. It's full spectrum and meaning it's across the spectrum. There's a economic element, diplomatic element. For example, uh, we need to get back and decide we're going to ratify uh, the UN Convention for Law of the Sea and get engaged in those global fora, the Arctic Council, a lot of talk about the Arctic recently, right? Well, China's a member of that. Well, so are we, but we're the only one that's there that's not involved in UN Convention for Law of the Sea. It goes on. So I think those three deterrents, just to sort of set um, iterations of, of what it means in the global sense are relevant for how we deal with China. 
we, whatever we do, it's got to be coherent because we can't just react and go item by item because that gets right back to what the gray zone operations are all about. Keep the other side reacting. That's great. Uh, so, Admiral Greener, this has really been uh, both productive and fascinating discussion, um, especially as more attention is given to China's expansionist tendencies in the maritime domain. Understanding the means through which Beijing seeks to achieve its objectives becomes ever more important. So really want to thank you so much for uh, for explaining your thoughts, for sharing some of your experiences um, here with us today. And uh, with that, I would like to remind our listeners that both um, a, an earlier publication in our Asia Policy Journal uh, in 2020 called Navigating Contested Waters and the recent 2021 Murky Waters in the East China Sea Special Report, you can find both of those in full uh, at NBR's website at www.nbr.org. Um, so again, Thanks so much, Admiral, for joining us. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Ali. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.